Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person, real or imagined, or the dark forces of Outre-Terre. It is not intended for children. This is Jim Donovan. The time is 10.30 a.m. on a Friday. I'm recording from my office. Oh boy, where to start? I guess I might as well pick up right after the Loki encounter. Like I said in my previous report, it was a 24-hour ordeal, and I hadn't slept at all during the whole process. So when an angel, I'm guessing my guardian angel, teleported me back to my apartment, I crawled upstairs and slept for 12 hours straight. I woke up in time for an early dinner. I stumbled down the stairs to where I had left Gordon O'Hedesy, my... I don't even know what to call him. He's a disembodied head who is a bit of a wise guy. I had left him in a backpack in my living room, because I didn't want his incessant talking to keep me awake. I opened the backpack and eased him out. Hey, kid! Didn't know if I'd ever see you again. Oh, you look bad. Well, at least I still have a torso, I said, as I set him on the kitchen counter. I busied myself preparing my breakfast slash dinner. Brenner. Fair enough, Gorn said amicably. Say, you wouldn't happen to have a ribeye in that fridge, would ya? Even a sirloin would be nice. If you recall, all those freaky Grand Masons did was feed me a protein slurry to keep my higher brainwaves functioning. Why would a head eat? I asked groggily. You don't even have a stomach. It's a metaphysical thing. I'm sure if he could have shrugged, he would have done so non-committedly. The important thing is, I eat, I sleep, but I don't, you know, defecate. I'm like a pet without all the annoying parts. Pets don't yammer all the time. I was developing a headache. Sure they do. You just don't understand them. I could tell Gordon wasn't the sort to take a hint. I hate people like that. Fortunately for him, he was cut off when the Molotov cocktail sailed through the window above my sink and set the floor in front of me on fire. Whoopsies! Gordon eked out. I was a bit irritated by this. I still had a security deposit, and I was hoping to get it back when I eventually moved out of this apartment. As the fire was spreading, I jumped over a counter to get out of the kitchen. I grabbed Gordon as I vaulted the counter with a dexterity that would have made Jack impressed. Or whatever passes for being impressed with Jack. I'm pretty familiar with this apartment, and over the years, I've peered often enough into the Verimbisio while here to be able to understand my habitation on a molecular and temporal level. As a result, I'm able to do things here that I may not be able to readily do elsewhere. I used my mind to seal off the room at the broken window, and at the transition point from the kitchen to the dining room. I made the seal airtight, and then banished all oxygen inside the kitchen. I, I make it sound easy, but... I've spent a long time practicing to not accidentally launch myself into the vacuum I'd just make. Space movies don't do explosive decompression justice. The fire suffocated almost immediately. I released my hold on the Visio, grabbed the gun I kept duct taped under my dining room table, and bolted outside to look for the would-be arson. No one. Of course not, that'd be too easy. I was about to walk inside, though, when something caught my eye. An envelope left on the ground, right outside my window. I looked to see if anyone was standing around, 
or had called the cops, and no one was in sight. My neighbors must be at their 9-to-5 jobs. I know it's weird for people outside L.A. to hear this, but most people in Los Angeles are hard-working family folk who don't work for the entertainment industry. It's just that those assholes that do work for Hollywood bring the average down for the rest of us. I grabbed the envelope and hustled inside. I didn't want to be standing around, in the open, reading something, for all the world to see. When I got inside, I tore open the envelope. It was a single sheet of heavy cardstock paper, with the words, He who has eyes to see, let him see. This sounded like some pretentious wizard way of saying, Look at this with the verum visio. And so I did. And yep, like I suspected, when I relaxed my eyesight and peered deeper into reality, I could see new text pop up on the paper. Mr. James Donovan, it read. As the slayer of the warlock known to mortal kin as Hawkwood, you are cordially invited by his followers, Fraternum Est Oculi, for a night of frivolity and ritual sacrifice. Black Tie Gala, tonight. This is an exclusive invitation, so please do not bring a guest. The catering budget is precise. Please mark an X on your front door using the Oculus Obscura if you intend to show up, and a circle if you refuse the invitation. Please understand that refusing this request is considered bad form and will be dealt with appropriately. Transportation will be provided at 11 p.m. Frivolity and ritual sacrifice. Hey, sounds like you got yourself quite an invite there, pal. Gordon piped up. I didn't realize that I had been reading aloud, but <laughs> I guess I'm alone so often that I just picked up bad habits without thinking about it. Yeah, I said. I don't know what to do about some weird telegram services that throw a Molotov cocktail through my window and then invite me to a party. Plus, I mean, black tie? They didn't even ask me what I wanted to eat. Plus, what's the Oculus Obscura? Eh, you mortals. You always get your nomenclature mixed up. What you call the Verum Visio, these jokers call the Oculus Obscura. Uh, by the way, both of you has got to work on your Latin conjugation. I mean, come on, this is just embarrassing. You're wizards! Huh. Weird. I muttered. I went back to the broken window in my kitchen. I dipped into the Visio and sorted the glass from the bottle from the glass in the window. I used my familiarity with the place to reconstitute the window to its former shape. It immediately fell back apart. At least my landlord was in Boca Raton. I made a mental note to figure out how to reinforce these windows against future attacks. Maybe change the molecular structure to make it shatterproof and bullet-resistant. I cut a finger on a glass shard. <laughs> reinforce. Uh, eventually. In the meantime, Fraternum Est Oculi. I guess that meant something like Brotherhood of the Eye or something like that. Great. I've got some sort of cult that followed Hawkwood and likely is not pleased by my actions against him asking for me to show up for some sort of hedonistic blood orgy. But, if they were going to sacrifice someone, I guess I'd better stop them first. This is partly an unsanctioned investigation control, but I'm including a list of my expenses, just in case. I had to rent a tux, but don't worry. I got a cheap one from an Armenian tailor in Glendale. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I swept up the glass from the bottle. I couldn't reform that to its original shape, since I hadn't spent hours understanding the complex structure of a glass bottle. Not that the window in my apartment stayed together, of course. And then I asked Gordon, Hey, how do I use the Visio, or the Oculus, to draw this X on my door? What? 
You don't know how to do an illusory script? I shook my head. Oh, boy. All right, kid, listen close. We'll give you a bit of a crash course in the basics. Gordon spent the next hour teaching me how to reach into the Visio and create an invisible writing that could only be viewed by those who could see. Fascinating stuff. I drew a big X on my front door and then left to get that tux. I realized that not only would I have to reinforce my security, but I'd actually have to create some security against intruders, prowlers, and magical invaders. I didn't know what magical means I'd need to take with me. It'd be too challenging to pack my shotgun or Emir's tears. No chance to hide a fulgrite grenade in a cummerbund. I was able to use a shoulder holster for my Colt 1911. I'm sure I'd be frisked at the door, but on the off chance they cheaped out on mortal security. I was about to take the soul stone when Gordon saw me holding it and said, Hey, you're planning on facing vanilla mortals, right? No fairies, no ghosts, no monsters? Yeah, I guess. Why? He hopped his little disembodied head over to me and started nudging my feet. Please, Jim, please tell me that you know you can't use the Verambicio against average vanilla mortals. Please tell me you've heard the one rule that even Hawkwood was terrified of breaking. I picked him up and held him at eye level. What are you talking about? Ah, oh, son of a bitch! All right, look. When you look into the Visio, you are peering into the foundation of creation itself. The angels and demons themselves are constantly in the Visio. It's how they view reality. Heaven itself does some pretty horrible things to mages who use magic to harm another person. As I understand it, Hawkwood found some loopholes, and that stone is one of them. But from what I know, you killed him before he was able to really mask his presence from heaven and use the stone to its full potential. Mask his presence from heaven? Will the soul stone make me invisible to angels and demons? I forget I mentioned it. Look, the biggest, baddest wizard you have ever met was scared of killing people with magic. And I think that should be a warning for you. I suddenly remembered what the guardian angel had said after the Loki trials. He had warned me from ever using the soul stone. Maybe what he meant was that I shouldn't be experimenting with its ability to cloak me from his kind. That would bear some thinking on later. And maybe some trial and error. I decided to leave the soul stone in a safe place. Gordon showed me how to open a pocket dimension that only I would have access to. So I stashed the stone in there till I got back. I'm really glad I found him, Control. This guy is going to 100% save my bacon, especially if I can keep him swimming in stakes. Don't worry, I won't be adding those to my expense list. I waited for the clock to tick to 11. I just sat and conversed with Gordon for a little bit. Nothing important. Idle chit-chat to fill the time, because I was getting a bit tense. It's not often that I deliberately walk into something I know is a trap. And even worse, it's not often I do this without being able to fully arm myself. I suppose I should use the time to understand more about who Gordon is, where he's from, why on earth the Masons had him locked away in some secret bunker, how a disembodied head is technically still alive. But, eh, it's a weird situation. I'd get to it later. I heard a knock on my door at precisely 11 o'clock. I opened to discover a dwarf of a man standing in a chauffeur's outfit. Uh, I should clarify, I don't mean a fantasy dwarf like Lord of the Rings. I was trying to be more sensitive to... Okay, you know what? He was a midget, all right? There was a midget driver waiting at my front door. I think it was meant as some sort of weird esoteric slight to send a person half the size of a normal human to pick me up. Because, you know, these seem like the kind of people who layered all their actions in annoying hidden meanings. 
like having a conversation with a woman, you couldn't take anything you saw or heard at face value. Everything was layered in signals and secret codes. Maybe it's their way of saying they thought me half a man, or half as good a wizard as they, or something equally inane. Didn't matter. I didn't care. I looked at the driver standing at my doorstep and asked him, So, what do you get out of this? He paused for a moment, gave me an odd look, and said, 35 an hour. Why, you looking to hire me for a different job? Okay, so he probably wasn't in on the cult deal. Great. Well, there's one person I have to keep safe if he's stuck around. Are you my ride back afterwards? I asked. Nah, I wasn't hired for the whole night. I was told this would be a one-way trip. That didn't sound ominous at all. I straightened my tie, put on my best Sean Connery accent, and said, Lead on, Macduff! The man gave me an odd look, walked over to the limousine, and opened the back door. I bent over and crawled inside, and found myself staring at one of the odder things I've ever beheld. Inside was a woman, that much was obvious, from the evening gown hugging her tight curves. But her face was totally blurred. It's like when you watch one of those real crime TV documentaries, and a witness has their face concealed to protect their identity, with the picture pixelated beyond recognition. In the suavest voice I could muster, I said, Pardon me, miss, your pixelation is showing. I couldn't tell if she rolled her eyes, but I could hear it in her voice. She had a soft British accent that seemed to be halfway between condescension and sarcasm at all times. Sit down, Mr. Donovan. I'm to be your escort for the evening. I'm also supposed to answer any questions you might have, or rather, answer any questions you might have that I think you need to know the answer to. Okay. What am I supposed to call you, then? Lana, she said. Then hit a button on the door, and then she hit a button on the door and said to the heir, Mr. Fredericks, we are ready to depart. Over the intercom system, our driver said, Yes, ma'am. I looked at her quizzically and said, Okay, I'll start with the obvious question. How did you do that to your face? She laughed harshly, mockingly, disdainfully. You've managed all that you've done, slain our lord, taken his magnum opus. And yet you cannot even manage a simple veil spell. You are like a toddler who has been given the secret to the nuclear arsenal. Sure, fine, I said. But why do you have this veil up, then? Perhaps I prefer anonymity. Perhaps I'd rather you not ogle my face like you are currently ogling my breasts. Perhaps you would recognize me, and that would make the evening unpleasant for at least one of us. Take your pick. Fine, I said. I get it, you're a frigid bitch. Now why don't you give me a clue what's going on tonight? I think she smiled when she said, I believe your invitation said something about dinner, frivolity, and a bit of after-dinner entertainment. Cut the crap. It said you're going to sacrifice someone. Or something, she corrected me, holding up a finger. Never underestimate the value of an animal sacrifice. Ah, oh, I think I'm done with this line of questioning. Okay, why don't you tell me? I was interrupted by a knocking on the door. Lana cracked it open, while Fredericks helped her out of the limo. I stuck my head outside and saw that we were parked just outside the Griffith Observatory, overlooking downtown L.A. I looked at my watch. An hour had passed. How had an hour passed? I stepped out of the limo. Fredericks hadn't offered to help me out. I guess he knows who's paying his wage. Lana, without turning to address me, said, Close your mouth, Mr. Donovan. Time flows according to my whim in that vehicle. So, we could have stepped into that car and then stepped out and the same time outside would have passed? 
She said nothing, but sidled up to me and took my arm, as though I were an escort, as opposed to a bumbling oaf that she was having to endure. I didn't move. I merely stood and stared at the presumably beautiful woman in my arm. I obviously couldn't tell empirically, but there's always something about the timbre of the voice. Ugly women always sound like they are. After about a minute of me not moving, she said in an obviously irritated voice, Mr. Donovan, all of your questions stem from your ignorance of the great tool at your disposal. While I easily have the time, I certainly do not have the inclination to correct all the gaps in your education. Please lead onward. Lana gestured to the brightly lit main building. I began walking, thinking that this was easily one of the least pleasant dates I'd ever been on. The most unpleasant date I'd been on was in college, where my date insisted that we go as a group to a play instead of just her and me. And then she insisted I buy her kid brother a ticket so that he could come too. And then she decided to sit with him instead of with me during the play. You know, I think she might have been the reason I have trouble trusting women to this very day. At the door to the observatory were several men standing on either side of the entry. I was not prepared for them. Both of their eyes were missing. You could see cavernous dark holes in their head. Where their mouths should be, there was smooth skin. Their ears were larger than they should have been, easily twice as large as a normal person's. As we approached, they hurriedly opened the door leading inside, while the other laid his hands akimbo. While gleeful laughter and music played within, Lana said, I do not have a coat. And that man stood straight again. I could see that they both began trembling when she spoke. Well, go in, she snapped. They're not getting their tongues back by you just staring at them. As I walked, I said, Is it necessary to blind and mute your slaves? She replied, They are mere acolytes. They blind themselves to show their devotion. We mute them. Then, as they ascend the ranks, we give them back what was taken. I thought you couldn't use the visio to harm a person. There are loopholes to every rule. They are, after all, willing. Are they not? The celestial court does not seem to mind what one does to a willing fool. Mollified, I stepped inside and into what must have been some sort of medieval ball. A string quartet played merrily, while men and women danced in elegant ballroom waltz. Light was gaily shining from hovering candle chandeliers. The wax should have dripped onto the floor, because they were not dangling in candle holders that could absorb the wax. However, under each chandelier stood an acolyte. The wax apparently dripped directly onto them, and solidified when it made contact with their skin. There were upwards of a hundred people inside, perhaps a dozen acolytes on chandelier duty, perhaps twenty-five couples dancing, and a couple dozen people milling about, talking. A dignified man, in the utterly undignified costume of a medieval chamberlain, announced us when we walked in. Lady Hawkwood and her guest, the wizard Donovan. The music stopped. The dancers halted. The people milling about turned towards us and thunderous applause broke out. I looked at Lana. Hawkwood, I said. She stepped away from me and began slowly clapping, too. She said, Welcome to the Brotherhood of the Eye, James Donovan. Father would have been so pleased to know you've come. I'll finish the rest of my report later, Control. I'm too upset at this whole thing to spit out one more coherent word. Till next time, this is Jim Donovan, over and out.
Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution non-commercial, share-alike international license. This episode was written by Ken Dickerson and performed by the same. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Ken Dickerson performs our audio editing. Visit us on Facebook. Read articles on SuperversiveSF.com or listen to us on unauthorized Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Contact us through Twitter at, at Pinkerton's Ghosts, email us at PinkertonsGhosts at gmail.com, or send us noble messenger possums with messages strapped to their backs. Don't worry, they know how to find us. Thank you for listening, and good luck.